Hello and welcome to part five of the Fincher Countdown from Some Like It Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and today on the podcast, we'll be deciding which Dave Tosky bow tie is the best in our review of David Fincher's 2007 crime drama, true crime drama, Zodiac. Joining me, as always, are two people who, like myself, are also not Paul Avery, Scott Shelton, and Jay Habib. Guys, how's it going? I'm doing well. God, I'd love to be Robert Downey Jr. I'd be rolling in it after all the MCU money he's made. Not his no. character in this film. No. <laughs> That's true. That is true. And Paul Avery is dead, so in real yes, life yes. so that is what it is but no i'm doing i'm doing well it's a long we're recording this just to give you some insight into when we're recording how far ahead of schedule we're recording uh it's labor day weekend it's gorgeous outside here in boston i just had a nice puppy play date with uh with charlie and back here now to record and i'm watching tenant for the second time this afternoon it's a great weekend life is good for scott shelton how about for jay habib jay habib is tired guys because <laughs> Uh, he decided to watch this movie late last night oh. and then was, you know, kept up uh, for a while. My head, my head was spinning. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, diving, you. I, I went down a little bit of like an internet search rabbit hole. It was, yeah. it was a, it was a <laughs> night. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm otherwise good though. Uh, Wait. Okay. So what time did you actually finish watching the movie? I mean, the movie's two hours, what, two hours, 45 minutes. We did warn you, I think, that it was a long movie. So. No, no, I, and, I, and I knew that. And in my mind, I was like, oh, it's fine. Like, you know, I'll, yeah. I'll be able to go to sleep after. And then, like, nope, that did yeah, not happen. Uh, yeah. yeah, I can't. I remember the first. I'm, there's a scene. I mean, we're not. It doesn't matter if I'm talking about spoilers. Like, the scene where he's, with like, in the house with with Marshall. Like, Jim Marshall, whatever the guy's name is. Like, Rick that is Marshall. A, Rick yeah. Marshall. That is a crazy intense scene. It's um, not actually Rick Marshall, but like it's yeah, it's the whole thing about like who, trying the to guy who out the thing about him. Yeah. yeah, no, I love that yeah. scene. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. scene is the biggest deep fake stress scene probably in a movie it was of all time. Haunting. Yeah. No, yeah, ab- absolutely. Well, look, we're already you know hint- hinting at it. We're already talking about the movie a little bit, so we should just get into it. Well, I no, guess. no, 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 Scott, you got to talk about how you're doing, Jay. I also know you're doing not just tired. You're great. So we'll move on from that. Oh yeah, that's that's true. Jay, Jay, I think I think Jay is doing fine too. But yeah, no, I'm I'm doing fine as well. If you listen to some like it, Scott, this week, you'll know my good news. I'm not gonna be the guy who just like brings it up on every single episode. Like, hey, you look at like me. Scott multiple weeks ago, you'll you'll have heard the good news. I'm a, I'm a lawyer, but um, yeah, that's that's still I'm still kind of you know, uh, it's still sinking in for me that 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 is that is my reality. I'm looking for a job. I'm having some positive developments in that area, maybe possibly. Ooh, um, let's talk about that then. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I've told you yet, but um, but yeah. So uh, that's that's what's going on with me. Mainly though, I just want to talk about this movie. Um, I mean, uh, guys, just to be clear though, now from everyone who comes on the podcast, for everyone who's listening, everyone who would could potentially come on the air, you have to refer to us as Scott and Scott Esquire now. That, so. is true. that is true. I had somebody at church this morning was like, well, so what am I supposed to call you now? And I was like, Scott, uh, es- I was like Esquire, not, not my name. Don't call me my name. I was like, just call me Esquire. The name's so, Esquire. Yeah. Scott Esquire. We, we will have to call it, I guess, some like it's Scott and Esquire now or something. But no, uh, I'm not going to be pretentious about it. All right, guys. Well, today on the podcast, as mentioned, we are reviewing Zodiac. Released in 2007, Zodiac is David Fincher's epic decade-spanning story of the real-life Zodiac serial killer who terrorized San Francisco and the surrounding areas in the late 60s and early 70s. Jake Gyllenhaal stars as Robert Graysmith, a political cartoonist for the San Francisco Chronicle, who becomes interested in the Zodiac case when the killer begins sending coded letters to the Chronicle and other newspapers. Graysmith, a lover of puzzles, begins trying to uncover the clues within the killer's letters, and in doing so, strikes up an unlikely partnership with hot-headed crime reporter Paul Avery, played by Robert Downey Jr., 
Avery and Graysmith pursue the case doggedly over the years while occasionally butting heads with police detectives Dave Toskey and Bill Armstrong, played by Mark Ruffalo and Anthony Edwards, who are conducting an investigation of their own. As the years pass and the likelihood of catching Zodiac starts to decrease, the stress and frustration of the difficult case begins to wear on all three, all of these men in different ways. Guys, it took a few years, but Zodiac is now considered by many to be a defining film of the 2000s and a true modern classic. Jay, I know you haven't seen this film but uh, until now, but Scott, you have, and I'd love to hear just quickly about your past experience with it before we get into the review. Yeah, my past experience with it is one kind of like almost every other Fincher film that we've talked about so far that I've seen is that I saw it a long time ago. I thought it was really good and I was curious how I'd feel going back now and, and watching it. And I think for the most part that for the films that we talked about thus far, so that would be seven and fight club uh, that I'd seen before. I think for the most part, those films were not as good as I remember, just to be frank. Like, I, don't, I didn't think they lived up to, to what I'd remembered them as. I think Seven fell short in a couple departments, although still was generally a very good film, don't get me wrong. And I think Fight Club was actually more of a letdown uh, than anything else on a rewatch. And I think Zodiac is one of those films that it still lives up to what I thought it was. Overall, I know I'm jumping the gun a little bit there, but I thought my expectations were pretty high, and I think I didn't have the same experience as some of the other films we watched thus far when I rewatched it. Yeah, no, look, I'm not shy about my feelings on this film. If you listen to our Some Like It Scott top 10 movies of all time, this is in my top 10 movies of all time. This is my number, was my number 10. I actually moved it up after watching it. Uh, this not time. just one spot either. You moved it up a Two couple Two spots. Times. I yeah. did, yeah. Um, it, it, it really does just get, get better every single time. Uh, and I do think it's a weirdly rewatchable movie, despite how, um, you know, how I guess you could, you know, it's, it's, somewhat dark and depressing. I mean, there are some really chilling kill, kill sequences. Like it's about a serial killer case that has never really been officially solved. You know, there's an unsolved murder mystery at the heart of this thing, even though, you know, they do strongly suggest who their favorite suspect is, who, you know, Fincher and James Vanderbilt, who wrote the screenplay, um, their favorite su suspect is. It's still unsolved, right? And uh, so it's it's not, you know, it's not a, a happy tale by any stretch of the imagination, but a rewatchable movie just because of how well done it is, I think. But uh, we'll get into our review now. Uh, let's just have it out there, guys. And we'll start with Jay. Were you thoroughly engrossed by Zodiac's realistic look at a famous murder investigation or does its length and lack of action make for a tough slog? No, I was with it uh, the whole time, and it's it definitely did not feel like a two-hour, forty-five-minute movie. I mean, you know, the, the the keeping me up part of it aside, <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, you know, like like you said, there isn't a ton of action, but like it, it's all really gripping. It, you know, it, and again, like just to put it simply, like the, the time flies, you know, and you know, there's a lot of ground to cover, and I, I might be jumping a little bit ahead in terms of how I feel about this movie. I almost wish it was like a mini series because I think you, you almost could have told like more with what was going on and I, like my only like minor complaint about it. And I know this is like something that was unavoidable was just that, you know, there's a lot of time skipping and I'm, you know, trying to keep up with like, all right, like how many months, how many years has it been? And, you know, the movie does a, a generally good job of, you know, like you know, putting expository dialogue to kind of help you keep up with that. But, you know, from start to finish, like it, it all feels like it should be there. You know, again, I almost wish there was like more, um, you know, just give us like time to kind of flush out everything that's happening. Cause I'm someone who, you know, came into this with little to no backstory, uh, you know, on like the actual like Zodiac killer other than like, you know, knowing this was an infamous killer who like was never caught and, you know, was briefly tied to a Texas senator as part of like a meme conspiracy theory a few years ago. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I was I was thoroughly engrossed. I had a really fun time. Um, fun seems like a weird word to use, but like you know, it was it, like it, I thought the the piece was set. It was designed well, and it like you know, it just kept me engaged from start to finish. It's interesting that you mentioned the miniseries thing because that is how David Fincher originally planned the film. He wanted it to be yeah. uh, like in several parts. And I think that that is more a product of the time, right? The fact that it wasn't a miniseries. Like, I think if it was today, it would be because. I mean, that's literally are, Mindhunter. That's literally what Mindhunter Right. Yeah. Is. That's what I was going to say yeah. is that like it's about the, you know, birth of, you know, serial killers basically as well. Mindhunter, which David Fincher, you know, is intimately involved with. Uh, and like. It. Yeah. Mini series and, and limited series are just so much more common nowadays. Uh, like, you know, back in the the 2000, you know, the mid 2000s when this was released, you just didn't sort of have the sort no of streaming like services, prestige mini series and stuff like you have today. Yeah. And that's probably if you weren't on HBO, then you weren't a mini series. Like it just didn't happen if you weren't on HBO. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Scott, your, your general impressions is Zodiac. Very positive. I mean, Jay, I think Jay really sums up my entire review of this film is that this is an incredibly engrossing two hours and 40 odd minutes or whatever it is. And that's saying something like even, I mean, I know we watched a lot of long films in the Nolan countdown, but like this film is just as engrossing and just as engaging on rewatches as any of the longest Nolan films are that I still enjoy very much. Uh, and so in some ways even more engaging than I think some of them are. And that really speaks to the subject matter, the way that it is portrayed. I do, I mean, Jay's talking about, it's like a minor thing. I do, I think that is actually the one I even say only real consequential negative thing about this film is that how much it jumps around in terms of time. And I know that it has to do that. Like it has to do that to tell the story that it's telling. And, and so it's, it's almost handcuffed in that sense. But when you jump, when it, especially when it jumps forward like four years in time and like, you don't feel that. I think you lose something there because you don't necessarily feel the time pass with these characters. I mean, you feel like the anguish that, that some that at least that Toski and Graysmith and to some extent Avery uh, feel in that. But, that's the only negative thing because I think a lot of like all these performances are really fantastic. I think the style, the particular David Fincher style that he's developed in this sort of, you know, these, these fictional noir, um, like, like neo noir films, uh, that he's made particularly seven. I mean, even the ones that we haven't liked, but the game, I mean, all four of them, right? Like seven, the game fight club, panic room, they're all very pulp noir. -y, uh, even in a modern sense. And I think that that translates perfectly to a period piece that requires some noir, right? Some really heavy noir elements to this, even though it isn't necessarily always trying to be that. And I really, I just really enjoy watching this film, even if it, I know that it, I don't quite have the same, you know, attachment or connection or, or and the movie doesn't have the same impact that I know that, that it has on you, Scott. I think there's so much to adore and, and to love and to praise about this film. Yeah, I mean, you know, talking about the running time, I will say first uh, to your point about the the time skipping, the original cut of the movie I think was like 3 hours 20 minutes long and they wanted Fincher to cut it down for for, you know, theatrical purposes and stuff. So yeah. that stuff likely would would probably seem a little more smooth in the uh, you know, the the director's cut which I don't think has ever been released, but um release the Fincher cut. There may there may be a director's cut, but I don't think it was like this original cut of the movie has ever sure. been released. But um but I'd like, love to I, see that version. I'd love to see that version cuz oh, yeah, like absolutely. for 2 hours 40 minutes. Man, it, like yes, it's long and you feel it at times, but keep it coming, man. Yeah, I mean, I was going to kind of bring up the same point that you did that I think it is essential that this movie is as long as it is because 
you know, like other great long movies, like, you know, The Irishman or, say or, 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 or whatever, you have to feel time passing in order for the, the story to work. Like you have to be able to feel the effect that time has on these people. Um, and I'll remind you, you like The Irishman. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I think that not that going to make the joke, not going to make the joke. Essential element for, uh, for Zodiac. Um, and, and so I think the, the long running time works. At the same time, you don't feel it, which is the point that that y'all are bringing up. Like, I, you know, it's a cliche to be like, this movie races by at 200, two hours and 40 minutes. But like, I will go out on the limb. I'll make the bold claim. I don't think that there is a movie as long as Zodiac that is as gripping as Zodiac. That is like, as you literally lose sense of time and like where you are in the movie, how much is left in the movie. Like, you're literally just completely sucked in from the beginning from that, you know, opening uh that opening set piece which is like you know become a somewhat iconic with its use of uh the donovan song the hurdy-gurdy man and uh i mark kermode said that this movie does for the hurdy-gurdy man what uh what um reservoir dogs did for uh stuck in the middle with you which i think is a pretty good comparison but um but yeah that that opening kill scene um is is something and you know it, it just sucks you right in like I think this is just, you know, the type of movie that I, I love so much. I think that's really what it boils down to. Maybe why I connect with it uh, slightly more than, than y'all do is that um, there's just something about these like procedural investigative type movies, right? Like it's the, I mean, I guess it's the true crime feel of it to, to some, um, to some extent, like, you know, if you, if you are a fan of like serial or making a murder or those types of, you know, big true crime things, which have become more popular nowadays, right? Like, that is a whole genre of podcasts. I mean, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of true crime podcasts. HBO has all kinds of documentaries and, you know, limited series and stuff focusing on true crime stuff. It is more popular now than it is, than it has ever been. Um, but I still think that Zodiac is like the preeminent uh, work in in this field of, of, of true crime. And I think that's just something that, you know, obviously maybe my background with wanting to go into law, having an interest in criminal law that might play some factor in it, but just something about, you know, these, these procedural investigations where it's not flashy, right? It's not Sherlock Holmes. It's not, you know, some drawing room whodunit like Knives Out or something with all of these big characters. Um, you know, it's not an action movie. Um, it is, people in offices making phone calls and going to people's houses and, uh, you know, going through boxes of, of files and documents. Like there's just something about that, that I love. That is my drug, um, for, for these types of movies. And I think that, you know, Zodiac again is, is probably the ultimate example in that, in that particular genre. I love the performances. Like every time I watch this thing, I think I have a different favorite performance in the movie, which I think just speaks to how strong the cast is overall. Um, I think Fincher, you know, directs it in an incredibly, I mean, it's, it's pretty straightforward, right? It's not, it's not um, as flashy, certainly as Panic Room, right? The last movie that we watched, which was, was very flashy in terms of the visual department and stuff. But I think he still, you know, finds a way. There's a shot I love where they're in the newsroom and Jake Gyllenhaal is looking out at the, at Toski and the, and Bill Armstrong walking through like the newsroom and the letters of the, the letters of the letters are like being layered over, like are overlapping the, just the, the newsroom and, and, you know, him watching them walking, which I think is a really cool sort of flashy shot, but otherwise, you know, it's a pretty, pretty straightforward movie, like visually and everything, which I think, um, 
maybe not in the kill sequences, but uh, elsewhere, um, which I think, you know, suits the material, right? This is a straightforward story of people, you know, trying to solve uh, this, you know, long, you know, decade spanning cold case. And so I, I don't think it requires, you know, some of the same techniques that were used in Fight Club or Panic Room or anything like that. Um, it's not but, flashy, but it still is very stylish for the period piece that it is, which is maybe yeah. the point that you're making. Yeah, and I mean, I think a lot of that is the period, like how how uh, you know meticulous he is with like rendering the period. I think like it's sure. very accurate in terms of the period details, the way the characters look. Right, like if y'all saw the photos or stuff, or if you looked up stuff after uh, afterwards about the you know the characters, like Mark Ruffalo and Dave Toski, they look a lot alike, especially when you know, he's wearing the suspenders and the bow tie or whatever, which is like, you know, if you look up Dave Toski, that's like one of the first pictures that comes up, but um, they look alike. Um, and look, you, you can just tell what like a, you know, again, meticulous, well-researched film this is. I mean, there's a reason that, it, you know, we were over five years in between Panic Room and this movie, which was his next movie. And that's because like Va James Vanderbilt and David Fincher, like they went out and basically tried to solve the Zodiac case themselves. Like they literally tried to become like, you know, Paul Avery and, and Robert Graysmith. And they, they tracked down people. They, you know, they interviewed people. They, you know, went through documents and everything. They did everything you see the characters in the movie doing. Um, and, you know, the, the result, I think, is a film that, you know, feels so realistic and feels, you know, so so well-researched when Dave Toski, you know, and Ruffalo met. They, he was so impressed with how much Ruffalo knew about the case. And, um, yeah, I think all of that shows in the movie. Like, it's just, it has a very authentic feel to it. But I, I will stop gushing for, for now, and we can get into some of our more specific points uh, about the movie. Um, and I guess we could start with the performances. And, and let's start with those three leads, right? Uh Three pretty big movie stars. It has it has to be said. Now, nowadays, three guys who uh, you know could could absolutely lead a movie, and he got all three of them in this movie: Mark Ruffalo, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, and Robert Downey Jr. Um, and before they were stars. Yeah, yeah, that that, that is true. Jake Gyllenhaal um, maybe was the the closest thing, but Robert Downey Jr. had not played uh, Iron Man yet. Uh, you know, Ruffalo had not played Hulk yet. Um, they were they were still you know known known commodities, but not stars yet. But uh, we'll start with Scott on this one. Who stood out to you from this uh, you know trio of actors and why? Oh man, Scott, I think it's a, it's a tough pick. I, I can is, empathize yeah. with your with or empathize, I guess, with your feeling of having a picking a different person every single time. I think for me, it comes down to Jake Gyllenhaal and Mark Ruffalo. I mean, I I I know your affection uh, for Mark Ruffalo on on a true crime or detective or newsroom style case, and and so I I know that <laughs> I know how much that that means to you. I think that this might be his best one, though. I think I think it's better. I mean. We don't have to relitigate Dark Waters since we've talked about that before, but at least off air. But I think that this is better than Dark Waters for him. And I think that his individual performance is better than his in Spotlight, although I think I may like Spotlight more overall as a film. The overall, like this is an incredible performance by Mark Ruffalo. I think it's an incredible performance by Jake Gyllenhaal. Although in some ways, I think Jake Gyllenhaal's performance is the most basic, if that makes sense. I, I don't mean that to take anything away from the performance because I think it's a really strong one. But I do think that I, I maybe favor Mark Ruffalo's um, overall performance just because I think you really feel um, for uh, maybe it's an odd thing to say, but I think you really feel for his character in a lot of different ways, how he really wants to solve this crime. And, and I, I think this is a department I wish the movie had like made me feel it even more. And I think you would have gotten that with more of the passage of time, but you really feel like the the anguish that I think this character goes through of trying to do his job, trying to catch the Zodiac killer. 
and having a lot of these forces that he needs to help him not really help him in the way that he needs. Like he has to like overcome so many obstacles and you get that. I think you get, you do still get that in the film. And at the end, you know, when he has this chance to sort of, you know, be this sort of, you know, ear, you know, this whisperer to Jake Hall's character uh, to Graysmith and to get like, to let him, you know, chase after these leads that he'd always wanted to chase after, uh, even though he has to do his job now, he can't keep pursuing these things because it's just not realistic anymore. I think that I really enjoy that element of it. And it makes me appreciate the the journey that his character goes on and the frustration that he feels towards all these different characters uh, over time as they are all on the same team, but they don't always, they aren't always all team players with each other as they try to hunt down the Zodiac. Yeah. I think for me, I have to give my props to Jake Gyllenhaal. I was thinking about it, you know, as we were building up to this point, And I think somehow like the only things I've really seen him in are Spider-Man far from home and John Mulaney and the sack lunch what? bunch. Um, Stand up comedy. Um, I know, are you right? freaking serious? Which uh, I, I am. And like, I, and that, I mean, that seems even crazier to me now that, you know, I've seen this movie and I'm like, wow. Like, I mean, I, I, I've like known who he is. Like he's a, to me, like he's, uh, he's a guy I've seen on like, on like a lot of talk shows and photoshopped onto a lot of Batman suits because he's a name that was always like tossed yeah. around as a potential Bruce Wayne. But, yeah, I mean, I I really enjoyed his performance. I you know, I walked out of there like I feel like I need to see more of him. And Scott, I think I, I, I think I, I might see what you mean by in terms of his performance being the most basic, but like I still you know gripping nonetheless. Like I really you know feel myself kind of going down the rabbit hole. And you know just to bring up that that last you know paranoia scene in the house with uh you know when when it seems like he's maybe been thrown for a loop uh, by some of the clues and, you know, like, like the paranoia is really just like setting in, you know, like I, I thought that was like, obviously, you know, there were technical aspects of it that made that scene really gripping, but Jake Gyllenhaal too, like just super believable. And, you know, I, I guess to even go one step further, the last, uh, the last scene where he, you know, comes face to face with John Carroll Lynch's character, you know, masterclass, I feel like in like facial acting, right? Like just like, like every little detail on his face. I feel like not a single muscle is like out of place there. Mm-hmm. Um, There's yeah, never I, anything wrong with Jake Gyllenhaal's face. I'll tell you that much. I mean, agreed. Agreed. But um, yeah, it, he, uh, he really did it for me. You know, I, I feel like, you know, I'll have to go back and watch a few more of his movies, especially when we, you know, are done with the countdown and I have a little more time. I'll give you a list of Jake Gyllenhaal movies to watch, yeah. but because you've missed a bunch of Jake Gyllenhaal I'm more than aware. Like again, like I'm, I'm, I've, I've heard them. You know, like they're they're in the ether to me, but like I've just never. So you seen haven't them. even seen like Day After Tomorrow. Nope. Interesting. Yeah, I I think you know as far as Gyllenhaal goes, I think this actually does bear a lot of similarities to his what I would consider to be his defining performance, which is in Nightcrawler. Yeah. Um, there's this sort of like chatty like kind of awkward but also knows how to like work situations uh yeah he knows he knows how to manipulate situations there's there's a there's a cleverness to him um even if he's you know kind of overly chatty again a little bit socially awkward um you know when at the end of the movie when he wants like when he basically goes full throttle like i'm gonna figure this case out right like he gets further than about anybody else has with the case um he figures out that i mean you know, there's pretty damning evidence that it was it was uh, you know Arthur Lee Allen, the John Car- Carroll Lynch character, um, and and so I think he he pulls that off really well. Um, and yeah, I mean he, he's he's a great screen presence. But for me, it's Mark Ruffalo. Of course, it is. Like it, you know, it, it 
I watched it. I'm like, it's always been Mark Ruffalo, hasn't it? I mean, he's he's so good. I mean, the thing he does so well in these movies, I think, is just it is such a lived in performance, right? Like he is he is this guy. Like you you fully feel like that he has been pounding the pavement for years and. Uh, you know, even even like the first time we see him, you know, the first scene when he's or, you know, when he gets in his car, he goes to that first crime scene or whatever. He gets out of bed just the way he answers the phone in that first scene and responding to the crime scene. It's like, yeah, I believe this guy has been a cop for the last 15 years and, you know, has been woken up in the middle of the night probably before to go to crime scenes or whatever. Um, but this one ends up being different. Right. And I, I think you totally see that in his performance as well. I do want to talk a little bit later about, you know, the how this movie portrays police investigations and like, you know, the frustration of police investigations, because I think that is a huge theme in the movie and obviously played out through this character of Dave Toski. Um, right. The fact that like, there's all this evidence sitting there and, and things just go overlooked or ignored or whatever for years. And, you know, then they'll come up like the, you know, Rick Marshall or whatever. There's the whole like, um, whatever is, I, I forget exactly what it is, what piece of evidence is eventually like, Revealed, but, but there's the scene where Jillian Hall is with the the guy, um, and they're talking about uh, Rick Marshall, and the guy says, "Oh, he's my favorite suspect." And th basically, there's some aspect of the investigation that was supposed to be done with either his handwriting sample or something to do with that, and that it was just never done. Like for for years, it just went by, even though there was like plenty of reason and probable cause to do it, it just never happened. And even like you know, even the end of the movie, right, where Jillian Hall goes to talk to. Clea Duvall, who plays the sister, right, of the girl who is killed. Um, is it the law student that's killed or is it the girl at the very beginning of the movie who gets killed? Very beginning. Okay, that's what I thought. Um, Darlene, I believe is her name, the sister of Darlene. He goes to visit her. She's been in jail, right, like this whole time ostensibly. And she gives him the, the piece of evidence, right, that basically, you know, kind of decides, hey, this is this is probably Lee Allen who did it, right? She, she gives him the fact that Lee Allen used to be like a friend of Darlene's. Um, and like, that is kind of what is almost the, the smoking gun there. And she's been sitting in jail this whole time, right? Like they, they could have ostensibly gotten this evidence at any time from her. So I think that, that, uh, you know, that all of that shows in Ruffalo's performance, I guess, just the frustration of, of this job and of, of working on a case like this, where, you know, you get the sense that all the pieces are out there and that, like there probably is an answer that you can arrive at. But for reasons that are out of your control and really maybe out of common sense, the pieces have never really been put together. And as time goes on, it becomes increasingly harder to put those pieces together. Um, and so I, I think that's what one of the things that's so fascinating about the film and about his performance. But if you um, want another series, talk about frustrating police work. Unbelievable on Netflix. Yeah, um, I, I've watched enough of it to know that. Um, supporting cast. Um, let's just go through some of these names real quick. Anthony Edwards, obviously, is a big one. He plays um, Bill Armstrong. Uh, Chloe Seveny plays uh, the woman who marries um, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's character. Um, you know, obvious, obviously, she's maybe like the one major, major female character in the movie. Um, I don't think that's an issue for, I mean, you know, reasons that we can talk about maybe, but uh, since that is a common thing that we talk about, but, uh, and then, you know, John Carroll Lynch, you brought him up, Jay. Uh, he plays Arthur Lee Allen only has a couple scenes, but you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and say, I think is incredibly effective in those, uh, couple of scenes as, 
as the guy who, you know, is the favorite suspect of David Fincher and, and James Vanderbilt. And you have to say, like, they, they build a pretty convincing case against him in this movie. But, uh, Jay, your thoughts on, you know, any of those names I mentioned, anyone else in the supporting cast? Obviously, you know, you can go down a little bit more. Elias Coteus is the guy, is the Vallejo cop. Um, there's just a lot of, you know, good actors who show up even in small parts. Totally. And I mean, yeah, I don't think we would be able to do them all justice in the short time uh, that we have. Since you covered John Carroll Lynch, who I'll also agree is very effective. I'll just shout out Anthony mm -hmm. Edwards, um, you know, kind of just as the, this, you know, not quite a foil, but just maybe, you know, the, the slightly more like buttoned up, not as crazy driven, you know, partner to Mark Ruffalo's character, you know, like, again, very much sensing the frustration, especially when they're you know, going through the tips and, uh, you know, talking to like all these people who are giving them like wrong information. And you can kind of just feel like, oh, you know, like I very much been screwed into this. And this, you know, this whole thing is just a giant uh, shit show. You know, it uh, very much feel that coming from him, you know, in, in the same way you described being able to feel, you know, Mark Ruffalo feels like he's a guy who's been a cop for 15 years, you know, getting similar vibes from Anthony Edwards. Yeah, uh, I I agree. Like Anthony Edwards, they they wanted to cast him because they wanted like the someone who could play like the most kind, decent-hearted person or whatever that uh, you know you could imagine. Because that's apparently what Bill Armstrong was like in real life, I guess. And I I think he plays that well role for the reasons you're mentioning, Jay, because he is such a he's almost like the uh, ideal, right? Because he you know he is involved in this case, he investigates it for a long time, but like he does doesn't let it bleed into like his other aspects when it seems like it's going to be consuming him or taking over his family or whatever. Um, he's like, forget it. I'm out. Uh, I'm going to, you know, go back home, spend time with my family. That's more important to me than getting to the bottom of this case. And the other three guys, you know, they never really find that the way out. They never find the way out of that foxhole. So that's, I think his character is interesting for that reason. Uh, Scott, your other thoughts on the supporting cast. I was actually going to say he's the least interesting character for that very reason. Cause he's the most relatable. So it's like, I, I actually find well, yeah. the character is not interesting at all. Um, but that's I'm glad not he's in the movie is what I'll say. Yeah, Yeah, sure. No, absolutely. I think that you, it's good to have, as I think Jay was calling it a foil. It's a good foil for these all these other characters who are borderline obsessed with it in their own, at least in their own way. And to, to see the sort of voice of reason or voice of relatability in it as well is, is good. Although it's not, in my opinion, it's not a very memorable performance just because of how very standard the character is. Uh, but for me, I think it's Chloe Seveny. I think Chloe Seveny, although she she's a latecomer to the film, I mean, she's introduced for one scene early on and then is really only in the last 45 minutes of the movie, really. But I think she makes a pretty big impact as this person who I think tries to have a lot of empathy for what you know Robert Graysmith is doing, but it's ultimately also kind of the relatable family. Like, why, like, why are you doing this at the cost of your family? Mm -hmm. kind, of, kind of wife and mother. And I think that that is, if I think about a performance that is more relatable or that a character that is in some, in some cases like more standard, I think that it's, it's her that I would go to here. And I think that the character ultimately is not a strong part of the film overall. Like I just, I kind of view this as a, if we're talking just about female characters, I, I don't think it's a positive or a negative. There's just really not any very, very meaningful female characters in this film, which is fine. It is that like the, Nolan has like, period pieces are often like that just because you have to work with the characters that are there. Um, but I, but the, but the time she does have on screen, I think is really impactful uh, in, in a lot of ways. And I, and I really, I really respect the performance. I, I find it so funny in the, 
their first like the first date they go on or whatever and, and she's like sitting at the table with this like guy who's like clearly scatterbrained his head's all over the place and like goes back and sleeps at his apartment on the couch all night while he waits for this phone call from from avery almost said Stephen avery which is making a murder uh, paul <laughs> paul avery uh and i find that i found that scene really funny and then i think after that when they you know when for when they the time skips forward when they're married and have kids together or have a kid together i should say because his other kids are from a different marriage um but i i find the performance there really impactful because you can see even in the brief scenes that she really cares a lot about him and knows and knows and respects that he cares so much about this even if she can't relate personally uh, and i think the dynamic wor works really well in chloe 70 and i haven't seen her in that many things but of all the things i've seen her in i think this is up there for me yeah i mean i think that first date the whole that whole series of events is interesting because right like she 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 sleeps on his couch and then she wakes up and she's like don't be sorry or whatever this is the most interesting date i've had in years yeah but then and like yes it it is in the moment right like in the in this like it, short period of time right where uh yeah. you know they've known each other it's like yeah this whole case is really interesting like i've never you know been involved with anything like this blah 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 but it, it wears out it's welcome right like for, yeah. for and her for like Four years are, later, it's the, the first date hasn't ended, is what she yeah, said. Yeah, exactly. Where yeah. you know, there he she he's still focused on it. You know, there's the scene where she's like very tiredly is like, go watch the TV. You know, they're at the dinner table, but then there's the, the news comes on about it, and she's like, go watch the TV. And yeah, you know where this is going. Um, and yeah, I don't think it's important that she doesn't have a huge part in the movie. I mean, number one, she doesn't have a huge part in the actual story that David Fincher is telling, and exactly, yeah. Number two, like it's almost the to bring it back again. It's almost the Irishman criticism of like, well, she wasn't really a big part of of Robert Graysmith's you know life at this point, right? Like he was so much more focused on the case. So it's kind of the point almost that she is not in the movie as much um, because yep. he's not spending you know time on her. But yeah, I think I think all of those it's a Dunkirk performances are good. Yeah. Um, and I, I forgot to mention something when we were talking about the main three cast members before we move on. But we talked about the casting process a little bit with Panic Room uh, last time. It wasn't quite the same torturous uh, experience as for Zodiac. But I just found this really strange that the way that Hall and Mark Ruffalo basically got cast yeah. was that before the movie was ever being cast, uh, Fincher was just talking to Jennifer Aniston. Jennifer Aniston. And... He was like, who are some actors who you have enjoyed working with in the past? And she said, Jake Gyllenhaal and Mark Ruffalo. And apparently it, for Fincher, you know, Jennifer Aniston's word is verse. And so he he cast both. Of I think the fact that he was just able to, you know, just drop these two names in there and get like incredible performances out of them and like performances. It seems like they were so perfectly cast. Right. They must have been from the beginning. Like, you know, it, it, see, it that shows what a great actor's director i think fincher is like i think even in the movies that we don't care for as much like the game or fight club like i think that there are still really really strong performances in those movies so i think you know not that we have to compare fincher and nolan in, in any regard but i do think you'll that lose, fincher, scott you'll I do lose think that, i do think that fincher gets better performances out of actors uh, i do think he is more of an actor's director in than Nolan. I think that's just because of the type of films Nolan tries to make. Um, but I, I think that is something that Fincher is really strong at that maybe we didn't get into as much in the Nolan series because there's, you know, maybe one or two standout performances per film. But um, I want to get into some of the, the plot details. And, and one thing I want to ask about is the kill scenes, right? Because obviously there's a level of disturbing that obviously he's going for. I mean, look, Seven, Fight Club, 
um, are disturbing movies. And I think he is hearkening back to those to some extent with, you know, these these very, you know, disturbing um, kill scenes. But I think, you know, they're obviously made even more disturbing by the fact that these actually happened and probably happened because of how much research they did probably happened very similarly to how you see in the movie. I mean, especially because like with, with a few of them, you actually have like people who survived and that Fincher and James Vanderbilt spoke to. Right. So um, they were able to um, actually, you know, get firsthand accounts of these things. And so I guess I just wonder it, it does he cross the line with portraying these things with, uh, you know, these real life murders um, in, in such a, you know, slick sort of like, I don't know, Hollywoody way. Um, again, there's, it's a little flashier in those, those sequences. Is it, is it a little too exploitative? I mean, obviously I don't think it is, but, um, do you think that the film needed these sequences, right? Because it is so much about the investigation. Um, do you, do you need these sequences where, you know, you're watching real life people ostensibly, you know, being killed? Um, Scott, or yeah, we'll start with Scott this time. I think in short, no. I, I think for me, I mean, you. I think you have to have it, right? Like we talk, I mean, a few weeks ago on the podcast about the new mutants, about how it's like PG, it's trying to keep a PG-13 rating. It doesn't lean into the elements that would have made the movie better. I think weirdly enough to say, because I think so much about this of this film is not about the murders, but I think like you need the murder, like you need those scenes, I think, to understand exactly how, like and why the people involved in this are as invested as they are. I mean, I think you can probably like cognitively get there, but when you see like, especially I think the Napa, the Napa killing is particularly probably the most gruesome of them all um, with the stabbings. And I think that that like, that's a difficult scene to watch, but I think you need that to understand how upset all of these characters are about what is happening. I do think there's like maybe a little bit of imbalance. Like there's so much weight put on these, these scenes. And then just like like, to, like several characters survive and you don't get you don't get any of that like I don't, I don't think you get that appreciation for how some of these people actually survived this i mean yeah there's like the final scene in the movie where you have the guy from the opening scene come back and identify jimmy simpson playing the guy yeah i saw that i thought that was funny <laughs> um oh, well, we don't have to talk about that though but yeah i think that was that was a funny casting and yeah so you have him come back and then you have the guy or a little bit earlier on the guy who survived the nap like the stabbing he comes back and I forget exactly what I'm blanking right now on exactly what he does, but he briefly comes back uh, for, for a scene. And I think that honestly, the, the, as much as I think the, the, those kill scenes are necessary. And if you make them stylish, I think the, the idea to make them stylish is to make them just slightly more palatable. Uh, otherwise, although I think the the stabbing scene is not like, that's not stylized at all. I mean, that's just shot for what it is, but like the, 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 I guess the assassination type shootings, like the opening scene. And I think also the cab driver scene is made to be a little bit more stylish. Um, and I think that's whatever, like, I don't, I think it's neither for me, it doesn't really make a difference either way. I can understand why they did it that way to make it a little bit more palatable. Um, but overall, I don't think it's wrong to do that. And I definitely don't think it's like glorifying it in any way whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, I do wish that we'd gotten a little bit more because I do think there's such an integral part of the story, a little bit more of those people of the survivors there. And I know a lot of them are just like trying to hide, like they're just kind of like Mike Majot character is pretty made pretty clear that he just leaves the state and doesn't like doesn't want to be any part of this. So I understand why you're not getting too much there, but something that was like one of the things that one of the small things, and I actually would call that a minor thing that I thought that might've been missing a little bit from the film. But overall, I don't think the violence was glorified. Uh, it was certainly stylized in, in certain areas, but it's all overall very necessary for me. 
Yeah, the like slow mo shooting of them at the beginning is, yeah. is like one. That's the most stylish thing. moment. For yeah. Sure, yeah. Um, Jay, any thoughts on this particular point? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I couldn't say I can speak much to what makes violence glorified, at least in this context. I, I'm sure we could, you know, come well, up with the examples idea of, like, of what does it make it cool? It like, does this scene make the violence cool? Right. And like, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know if like, you know, cool is necessarily the word, but I, I, I could almost like see it like serving as like inspiration. And again, maybe that's just me being like a little bit too like sure. squeamish about it. Um, th th this is still to say though, that like, even though like, you know, I, I worry that that line might've been walked a little too closely. Like I do think that the murders are necessary. I think that Napa scene is necessary. You know, again, even if I'm a little bit squeamish, by it just because you know i mean not not just to you know under uh, to help you like understand why you know rdj and ruffalo and gyllenhaal's characters are you know so upset and like you know uh, like encapsulated or rather like uh, just captured by it like i think it's just it, it, i also like you know need to have a full like understanding of what's going on and like i think scenes like that you know like also just you know kind of help me like understand like why this was such a big deal and like you know like I, I guess it's similar to understanding why it's a big deal for the characters too but i don't know like i feel like it, it does add like a, a personal level of investment like i myself was really upset watching this and like that's why you know like i went down like a rabbit hole you know after the like not a i went down a small rabbit hole after the movie you know just to like look up other suspects and see like you know how this all kind of like jay read jay read you know, robert unfolded. grace's book after uh, he finished he's, he's just not showing us the court board that he has set up in the other corner of the room with all yeah. the lines going <laughs> no but like and, and and i think but i i think that's like important too right because you know you i mean maybe not you but like i wonder what you know like why does this movie like need to be made and i don't know like i, I think there's a certain just like level of understanding that comes from you know like like, like getting like why like this is a a name, you know, the Zodiac Killer was like thrown around in the zeitgeist, right? Like that's not something I would necessarily understand if I didn't totally get like, you know, how just deranged and like messed up this entire thing was. So, you know, like acknowledging that, you know, I don't necessarily like love the inclusion of the violence, like you know, still, you know, accepting the fact that I think it's necessary to like get me to the point of getting, you know, like why, you know, this was all such a big deal. Yeah, I think one thing it adds for me, too, is that it kind of almost contributes to, like, how confounding this murder investigation, like, this the all, this whole investigation is, right? Because, like, these killings that they show are so, like, brazen, and, like, he walks up to this couple in broad daylight, right, and just starts stabbing. He ties them up and everything, and then the whole cab driver thing, I mean, like, he the woman gets in his car, they drive around, whatever, like, she, he ends up letting her, letting her go, even. Like, the fact that he just... You know, he walks up to these people in, in broad daylight. He lets them see his face. You know, it, it, it seems like that uh, it, it almost makes it like, you know, the, the investigation more confounding. Like I'm saying, like, how can they not like solve this thing? Right. Like you have literal witnesses who have seen this guy. Um, and it seems like, hey, there should be some sort of evidence being left over from all of this. So I think actually seeing those killings played out and, and you know, the cab driver thing as well, too. Nobody's killed there. But um I think that, or I'm, I'm sorry, not the cab driver, when he picks up the woman on the, the yeah. side of the road. Um, but, um, but yeah, I, I think just seeing those killings helps contribute to like, 
I don't understand like what the detectives and, you know, the reporters were probably feeling the confusion of like, I don't understand how we can't solve this thing. Right. Like we seems like we have everything right there that we need and yet we still can't solve it. Um, so I, I think it works in that regard too. But um, another topic I want to hit uh, is it's sort of a theme in the early part of the movie and that's media coverage of, you know, these murders. Right. Um, and particularly, you know, like we see, obviously uh, Dave Toskey and Paul Avery sort of butt heads over this fact. And, you know, the fact that Dave thinks that Paul Avery is sort of interfering in his investigation and stuff by doing his own sort of investigation. Early on, we have like the school bus letter, right? And there's this whole conversation about how we can't let this get out. You know, we don't want anyone knowing about this, blah, 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 blah. Um, you know, because it's going to disturb people or whatever. And then like two scenes later, you know, they're on the news talking about literally reading the line from the letter of like, I'm going to pick off the little kitties from the school bus. There's the whole scene with Brian Cox as the lawyer who, uh, you know, actually calls and talks to, you know, probably not the real guy, but, um, but somebody on live TV pretending to be the Zodiac or whatever. What did you think about the, the movie's portrayal sort of, of how the media insinuates itself in these investigations? Did you think it was, you know, a positive portrayal? Because obviously right. The other side of it is that, you know, Paul Avery and even more Robert Graysmith are able to crack huge parts of this case, right? And they are media members. They are reporters, uh, or cartoonists in the case of um, of Graysmith. So there is that positive aspect of their intervention, but there also seems to be a, a little bit more of a cynical view of how um, the media insinuates itself when maybe they should be leaving things to, you know, the professionals, uh, people like Dave Toski. Um, what do you guys think about the, how that is portrayed in this movie? Jay, we'll go to you. Yeah, I think to me, at least it starts off somewhat positive and necessary, but it, kind of as time goes on. And I, I think part of it is because you see what happens to, you know, RDJ's character uh, and others you know, it, it starts to become a little bit more negative. I mean, when when Mark Ruffalo and RDJ kind of have that, uh, you know, that confrontation scene in the parking lot after, you know, RDJ's kind of like opened the floodgates by tying the Zodiac killings to the, to, you know, a, a murder from a little bit before. And, you know, RDJ's, you know, just like, you know, I just want Pete or I come in peace. And Mark Ruffalo is just, you know, furious and talking about how he's completely derailed it. That coupled with, you know, there are, there are lines peppered throughout about, you know, like people asking like Jake Gyllenhaal, like, you know, like, why are you in this? Like, you know, you're not selling any more copies of the newspaper as a result of this, or you're not benefiting in any way. I, I feel like as the movie goes on, especially after that, you know, fight scene between uh, RDJ and Ruffalo, you know, you kind of get the sense of like, 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 you know, that the Zodiac killer essentially like is good for business, you know, and that keeping the investigation open, like is good for business. And that, that to me, you know, kind of is like, the negative spin and, you know, I don't want to tie it too much to like, you know, present day or whatnot, but I, I definitely like, you know, find myself making some comparisons in terms of, you know, uh, again, not to like point any fingers, but you just, you know, you see news outlets like potentially, you know, like, you know, bad news is good for business. Right. And so I, I feel like that was kind of brought in more as the movie went on and, you know, what started off as kind of like a, a more positive, like, all right, like, you know, maybe this is, kind of starting to help solve the investigation turn negative for me as the movie went on. Yeah. I, I love the moment where they're interviewing all of the nut jobs or whatever that come in talking, claiming to be the Zodiac killer or whatever. And the one lady is like, have you ever considered that the Zodiac might be Paul Avery? And he just goes, 
frequently or like all the time or so I forget exactly what his response is, but that's a great sort of like moment of dry humor in the movie. But um, yeah, no, that's interesting what you're saying. I actually think that Nightcrawler, which I mentioned earlier, is definitely the better film to look for for, for this theme. Um, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I think Zodiac's a better film overall, but if you want the, you know, a, a movie that looks at media sensationalism of violence head on, that's, I mean, that's Nightcrawler right there. Um, yeah, but, I, I actually, I actually think that this film really, rather than painting a positive or negative spin, I think it just paints the picture like it was and, and actually asks this like deep moral question of what is the role of media to do mm -hmm. this? Like at least, I mean, media has evolved so much. And I mean, this film was made 13 years ago. These <laughs> crimes happened, you know, on, you know, 50 years ago at this point. Right. And so it, it's so different. Uh, it's it's evolved in such a way, but at the time, like it asked questions, like they were sent these letters, and they did notify the police of them and stuff. It's not like they were hiding them to like run the story and make huge news about it. But they were asked the question, like if we don't do this and something bad happens, are we the are we the reason why? And I think that the film asks that question over and over again. And I think that yes, it's a media has evolved over fifty years, but I think to some extent, right? Like, what is the moral responsibility? of news to hand like of of media outlets to handle news reporting and i think that's a question that is really complicated that i think that it's easy to make an argument that at least nowadays it's very distorted and it's much more capitalistic and trying to and this idea of like what you're saying jay i think really resonates at least with me about like bad news is good for business and we want people to to keep getting you know to keep keep clicking on our on our articles and on our website but i wonder i wonder if I, I wonder if that is how things actually were thought about back then. Obviously, we don't know the answer to that question, but I don't think that this movie is necessarily, I didn't get the impression that this movie is trying to say the San Francisco Chronicle was trying to, you know, continue like up their subscription rate by just constantly reporting on Zodiac. Yeah. And, and so I think that the movie's stance at least is not to try to take a side on that positive or negative, but just to present you at least the stuff that's relevant for that and ask you a moral question of what is the responsibility of, of the news, right? Like, Yes, there's these positive things where they publish this story and, you know, may, they may or may not have saved a bunch of people from being killed because they did what the Zodiac said. I think you can create a pretty compelling case that you probably wouldn't have done it even if they hadn't published it. Right. But, um, you know, they have to take like what steps do they have to take to make sure that they are, you know, you know their hands are not the blood isn't on necessarily to some extent on their hands. And I think that's a that is a that is not an easy question to answer because. Yes, maybe you can directly save people, but are you endangering others by doing that and, and showing that you're willing to bend to the whims of of these people who are you know crazy and murdering people? And it gets a tough question to answer. And I don't think the I don't think the movie necessarily answers that question for us, but it definitely asks us that question. Yeah, and Scott, you mentioned spotlight earlier. I think a, a big theme and spotlight is this idea that like it takes an outsider sometimes to get to the bottom of these things, right? right. Like in spotlight, it's Liev Schreiber as the New York guy who comes to Boston or, or Stanley Tucci playing the Armenian lawyer, right? These are like the outsiders who are end up playing an integral role in uncovering the scandal. Here, it's Jake Gyllenhaal, right? He is a political cartoonist. He is completely removed from this world of police investigations and, you know, murders and all of that stuff. Unlike, you know, Paul Avery, who covers crime and obviously the, the cops. Um, and he is able to make... Um, you know, head the most headway in the case, maybe of anybody, uh, you know, at the end, again, depending on how you feel about Arthur Lee Allen's um, viability as a suspect. Well, let's um, talk about that at the end. Let's like, let's make that like yeah. the last thing we talk about. Sure. Um, and 
Um, but so I think there's a similar thing going on there. You're talking about, you know, it's asking what, the question of what the media's role is. Yeah, maybe there is a, a role that media can play in the context of like, you know, these these outsiders, right? Yeah. These people who, you know, don't necessarily have, um, you know, experience in these areas. But I think that, you know, it also shows the downside of that approach, obviously, which is that, you know, in order to get to the bottom of this case, or, you know, again, reaching a, a possible suspect and making the these huge breaks in the cases, you know, Gyllenhaal loses everything in his personal life. He loses his his family and, and wife. Um, and so, yeah, I don't I don't think that there's a, a good or bad portrayal. Like you said, I think, uh, Scott, I think that just shows it how it is. And there are definitely conclusions that you can draw from that just in the way that he depicts the events as they happen. So that's interesting. But um, also, before we move on, did they fudge yeah. a little bit on the uh, on the personal life of Robert Graysmith? I think they did. I I I forgot to look that up after the movie because I know I've looked it up before, but I don't know exactly about the what what Chloe Sevigny's character, who she was in real life, what the extent of their relationship was. Um, but I do think that that is. I do remember in the past looking up and thinking that that was maybe one area where they had slightly exaggerated some stuff. Yeah, because I, I did I did take the liberty of looking up because I was interested by it. Um, whether it was a matter of convenience or whether that's actually how everything happened, and he was still married for the first four years of the movie. So it, this doesn't it doesn't portray it this way at all. But he didn't get divorced from his first wife until seventy three. Okay. Um, and it definitely like the opening scene in 69 makes it look like he's divorced yeah, yeah. already uh, and he's like still married I mean maybe they were separated already like I don't know the details of that it's possible that they weren't living together anymore but um, yeah and then they get divorced in and then he and, and Melanie which is Chloe 70s character get mm -hmm. divorced in 1980 which would be right after would that be right after the last events I mean I not 78 was I think the not yeah. counting the Jimmy Simpson thing yeah I'm not counting that yeah. yeah I think 78 was like the last like the you know the letter or whatever that they think that Toski wrote maybe I think that's yeah that's right. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah um so I think they might fudge it a little bit on, yeah. on some of the smaller details of his personal life but that's probably neither here nor there yeah I think that that's a a creative liberty that ultimately serves the film well but um, ruins the film absolutely ruins the film <laughs> yeah no credibility um, <laughs> I do want to talk about I mean I've shared my thoughts on it but. Um, the way that this movie depicts sort of the the mundane nature, I, I guess I'll, I'll wrap a couple of things in here about you know whether this movie is like a satisfying watch when number one, uh, you know, it's kind of there's not that much action. Like I said at the beginning, it is kind of, you know, showing the mundane nature of police work. A lot of times the sort of daily grind or whatever. And, and, you know, it's going on over a course of years, years. There's a lot of time passing, you know, like sometimes it takes like you know, multiple years for another break in the case to come up. And also the fact that the mystery is ultimately unsolved, right? Like, you know, it, it does it still make for a compelling viewing experience. I mean, I know you're all going to say yes, based on your reviews so far, but what is it about those things that maybe on paper wouldn't necessarily add up to like a, a you know, a compelling watch that, Hey, here's this, we're going to spend a three hour movie um, about the, investigating this murder. And we don't have an answer as to who the murderer is. And we're going to show you the investigation in like the, you know, most painstaking detail. You know, what about it works, Scott? Well, for me, look, I have a lot of thoughts on true crime stuff and we'll get into some of them at the end of the, at, at, when we talk about what, about my thoughts on Arthur Leon and stuff like that. But I think overall, Look, if you're watching a true crime show to get to like understand or like movie or whatever you want to think about to understand like the answer to the question, like 
you're probably not going to enjoy yeah. the the actual meat of of what's going on if what you're living for is the is the answer. It's about the I people. think there's some exceptions. I think there's some exceptions that like I thought I thought McMillions on HBO earlier this year did a really good job of making the answer to the question really interesting. Um, and, and it does build towards that. And I think so there are some exceptions. But like, for example, in like Making a Murderer, it just I'll talk about a really popular one from Netflix from like, you know, four years ago now or so. Like, there's no answer to that to that to that question. Like, there is no resolution. Like, yes, Stephen Avery was was convicted and isn't or wasn't. I haven't watched season two of that because I just couldn't. I just rolled my eyes so much. There's even a season two of that, but um, I, I feel like there's no answer to that question. It's certainly the documentary paints a picture and maybe even one that's a little bit dishonest about some of the evidence. But like overall, there's no answer to the question. I think even with the case that they draw, and and I think that like if you enjoy true crime, you have to enjoy some of the mundane aspects of it, right? And I think that Zodiac really gives you the mundane aspects in the most engaging way they can. And so I think overall, for me, do I find it compelling? Absolutely. And in fact, I'd go a step further in that one of the things that I don't like is how hard it tries to convince you that Arthur Lee Allen is like the killer, whether he is or not. Like, I think I think that, that you don't need the last scene of the film. I don't think you need the last scene where Jimmy Simpson comes in and identifies Arthur Lee Allen in like the spread and then the tech. I mean, you can have the text on the screen. That's such a classic true, true crime thing. That's totally fine. But I think that that it would have been so much. It actually would have been even more compelling, I think, if the last shot of the film is Arthur Lee Allen and uh jake gyllenhaal like locking eyes in like the hardware store or, or wherever that he's working i think that's such a more compelling ending final shot wise um than than having this identification personally i just i i think that and because i think that again the reason that i watch this is not to be told you know like you see all this evidence we laid out like yeah let's let's go ahead and like nail the last uh, you know hammer the last nail into the coffin there what i come for is is the mundane aspect and the work the work that is put into these things and I think that Zodiac does that really well. Yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily see that as like necessarily having an agenda, right? Because it's it, there, there are all the things that they're depicting well, happened, right? Like that sure. identification happened, um, and so I think. Oh yeah, 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 totally, yeah, totally. I think it's fair to show that identification. I think I, I get what you're saying. Like, I think it would also, I think it would be a perfect film still, even if it cuts off at the them locking eyes. But I think getting that final twist of the knife, right? Cause it's not just that, that he identifies Lee Allen, but it's that Lee Allen then dies of a heart attack before they can ever even bring him in. Um, and so I think getting that final twist of the knife of like, Hey, guess what? We got to, we possibly, after all this time, we maybe actually solved the case and we'll never know now because this guy died and he's probably the only one who could, you know, conf confirm and say yeah uh i i maybe. actually did it so uh, that it works for me in that regard the movie but. has certainly convinced you that they've solved that they've solved the crime yeah. i don't know all the details but i would like every true crime show this is not something that zodiac is is unique and being guilty of i am sure there's evidence left out of uh, for necessity that would point the finger in a different direction uh, and i'm not hitting zodiac for doing that like it's it's necessary for every true crime show to do that but one of the reasons why i don't like why i don't find those types of any that you're describing compelling in these types of movies is that they they feel a little dishonest it's not that they don't believe that it's true but it feels a little bit dishonest um in the in the true crime realm of things personally i think that it the movie by itself alone makes a pretty compelling case that that this person did not get investigated thoroughly enough. And he may very well have been the Zodiac killer. I think that he creates a very compelling case for that. But I think that one of the things that, uh, one of the things that I like about these types of shows and movies is that is when it presents the case 
in, in a very honest way. And, and I think Zodiac, like many true crime things, doesn't necessarily always do that in that it focuses really hard on one particular person. But again, I think it creates a really compelling story because of that. And, I, and I'm really not trying to knock it too hard for it. I think it's a, I think it's a function of the genre overall. Um, but I, I do find the endings like when you're when it's just trying to to bury this person for it. Uh, I, I don't find that as compelling personally. Yeah, I mean, look, they obviously think it's him. Yeah. Um, but and, I then, and they may very well be right. Yeah. But I don't think that they necessarily like paint over the cracks. Right. Like you still there's still no answer for the the handwriting thing. Right. Because that's how he gets dismissed in the first place as a suspect is, sure. you know, uh, Philip Baker Hall playing the handwriting expert is like, Oh, there's no way, you know, we get, we got samples from both hands. He's ambidextrous, what ambidextrous, whatever. Um, it doesn't matter. The handwriting samples don't match. Rick Marshall is the one who like actually has that, the handwriting, but, um, but Lee Allen like has a lot of other stuff going on. So I think they, they do show some of the holes in the investigation. Um, but yeah, you know, I, including that in, and they obviously want you to think it's him. Yeah. I just don't have as much of a problem with it. But Jay, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, we, we touched on a few different points there. So I'll, I'll try to succinctly give my thoughts on yeah. them all, which is, I mean, I, I think the the fact that, you know, we, we that if you come for if you come to this type of movie for an answer, you're going to be frustrated. I totally agree with. And again, not really knowing too much about, you know, the the Zodiac killer mythos coming into this movie. Like I definitely found myself a little bit frustrated, uh, you know, with the fact that we don't have a concrete answer. I think the fact that, you know, the, the movie does try really hard, Scott, like you said, to kind of like bury this person um, as like the, I don't know, the prime suspect, the most likely suspect, however you want to define it, you know, is, you know, I guess fine. You know, I, I think you kind of have to do it this way. Otherwise, you know, if, if, if the movie was instead, you know, like top five most likely suspects after all this time. Well, like, you I don't certainly can't make a movie out of that. I, I don't <laughs> you think can make a series out of it, maybe. But, yeah. Exactly. Well, yeah, I mean, exactly, right? So, like, you know, if, if you're if you're confounded, uh, you know, by, you know, movie runtime limits, even if, you know, you go as far as 245, like, you know, I, I think you kind of have to do it this way. And, you know, I, I think, you know, for, for the sake of the fact, you know, if, if we step back and just, rem if I, and I like remind myself, you know, like, this is a movie, you know, I, I think the fact that it's done this way, like, works very well. You know, if, if we want to talk about, like, the, I don't know, like an element of like responsibility that comes with like, you know, putting this kind of content out there and very much just, you know, kind of like rubbing or like dragging this guy's name through the mud, like, you know, whether or not he actually was it, you know, then, then it becomes a little bit more complicated for me. But, you know, it, I, I, I think, and, you know, just trying to remind myself that, you know, like it, it's a movie very much based on like a lot of investigation that was done. I, I think it works. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't know. We, yeah. I like the aspect too that I mean again this is just a personal thing but I like that Dave Toski right at this point like he's kind of almost checked out of the case he is like he's only like vaguely giving Grace Smith some like tips of like hey here's the person you should talk to or whatever and then Grace Smith shows up in the middle of the night right after the uh, after he finds out about Lee like at, at his house and it's like it should be this moment of like you know um, hey like leave like that you're crossing a line now i'm like not uh involved with this anymore you can't come to my house and bring this to my house like this is you know where i, I want to be with my family but he tells him right the one thing that could get toski to still be interested which is it was arthur lee allen right the guy that toski thought it was all along uh and you know could not believe that um 
that it was not him when the handwriting sample um, results came back. So I, I like that part of it too. But um, I mean, that doesn't probably speak to whether it's a, you know, a, a good ending or not, but let's, let's. Well, also crossing the line. I mean, he'd been almost fired for yeah. whole, the whole investigation around writing the fake right. letter. Um, thankfully, I think that's why he was over it. Thankfully he was clear to that. Uh, I think, I think to, to something you said earlier, Scott, I think Dave is the heart and soul of the movie, right? Like he's, he's the most, likable character maybe most sympathetic character um because i think like um you know robert downey jr like paul avery and um and uh gray smith both make some very poor life choices probably over the course of this movie and um at least at least he has the the aspect of like i'm i'm trying to do my job here um and i you know for whatever reason i can but um let's yeah. finish by talking about Arthur Lee Allen, maybe, do you think he's a good suspect, right? I, I guess we, you know, we kind of hit on that um, a little bit there just, just a minute ago, but is there anything that either of y'all want to add about um, his, his viability as a suspect, you know, se separating from the fact that the movie makes the decision that, hey, we're going to, you know, point the finger at him in the end. Um, do you think like that the movie, you know, makes a convincing case? Like, do, do you see why they're pointing the finger at him? I mean, that's tough to answer, right? Because, I mean, it's like you said, you know, they they very much are picking and choosing exactly what we get to see. And there is, you know, yeah. some evidence that, you know, we're probably not getting towards other suspects. I mean, you know, again, we get like a, a few thrown in there, but it's the kind of thing, it's like, you know, if, if everything you showed me was true, more or less, you know, like, you know, focusing on like the hard points, like, you know, the, the conversation where Lee allegedly, you know, described himself as Zodiac and used some of those expressions and then, you know, the fact that he had the same size boots and, you know, those weapons and, you know, like, like if, if all those, like, if that laundry list is all factual, then, you know, you've made a compelling case, I think, to me. But, you know, it, again, it's, it's hard just, you know, knowing that, you know, the, the filmmakers very much came into this, right, with, you know, we're going to show you why this is the guy. And so, yes, you've made a compelling case, but I, I can't disregard the fact that this wasn't like an objective, a uh, purely objective, at least, right? Like, you know, here's all of who it could be and why, right? I mean, do, do we know that it wasn't purely objective though? Like it, are there, do we know that there are facts out there that they, um, you know, they didn't throw in the film about other suspects or because, because to me, like, again, it's, it's I mean, they based it off, they based it off Robert Graysmith's book. That's yeah, like, right. Yeah. Ultimately it's based off the books. Do you think that Robert Graysmith included every piece of evidence in the book that he wrote? Do you think he's even aware of all the evidence? But, but like they, did, they didn't limit their, their, you know, entire creation of the movie and investigation to just the book. Right. Like they, again, like I was talking about earlier, they went out and, and sure. did work on their own. So I feel like just with the amount of research that they did, um, yeah, maybe there's one or two things here or there, but I think they they earned the right. And I, I don't think it's dishonest of them to, you know, put, to point the finger at a suspect ultimately. Again, I don't know. Maybe maybe there's some huge gaping things like in making a murderer, right, that they uh, just left there's out. There's definitely no way they've they included every fact or detail of a case in two hours and 40 minutes. Yeah, of, of course. Um, but, you know, I guess uh, salient facts is what I'm talking about. You know, th things that might change your perspective on who the, the ultimate, um, you know, culprit is. Um, I don't know. I just feel like that that's not what Fincher is interested in doing. I think he went to all the painstaking research and everything because he wanted to get it right. But I, I don't know. I'm probably just, you know, again, excusing him maybe, but, um, but, but look, I, I think, it, I think it's necessary to make the film, right? Like, like it's not an interesting film. If like you're at out, like two hours and 30 minutes 
and they're like, there's all this evidence and there's all this evidence and yeah. I don't know what to do. Like, it's just not an interesting movie. And so that's why I'm not trying to hit the movie too hard for doing that. But it's it's why I think it's maybe again a little bit in my in my opinion in the, in the true crime genre in general it's it's better to hedge rather than like really nailing you know nailing your stake in the ground so hard on on one person you know rather than having the last scene just just ending it there with the like, with the eyes locking because it's still presented the case right it's still done the thing mm-hmm. um, and they're not just trying to totally just bury you with with evidence. Uh, and I put that in quotes because it, it is selective. Like, it, like inevitably, it's selective, right? Maybe it's you know, maybe it's the most important evidence. We don't. Well, the thing is, we just don't know. Like, we just don't know the answer to that question. Um, just like you don't know what you're missing when you watch Making a Murder until afterwards. You go, you know, read all, read all, read like essentially the prosecution's defense of Making a Murder uh, against kind of the character assassination that a lot of them get in that show. But overall, look, it it, it makes for a compelling movie. And look, I, I'm not rating the movie on how on how accurate or how honest or whatever it is uh, to the story. Do I think it's mostly honest to the story? Yes, I'm not saying here it's like some like complete fictionalization of everything that's happening. But we just don't know the answer to the question of do is what we have an accurate portrayal of everything. And the, to me, I just think that's so unrealistic to believe that it is. Um, that I, I that's why I just prefer. I don't. <laughs> But like, but what? Like, because you've watched the movie three times, you think you understand the Zodiac case? Like, I don't, I don't understand. No, that's that's not what I mean at all. I mean, because of the again, the research that they did and reading about the background on this movie, and um, you know, all of the the painstaking detail that they went to to talk to everyone to look at everything, um, mm. you know, that it, that is out there that is in existence. If sure. there is, if there is something salient or important that they left out, it's because it's not, it, it doesn't exist anymore. Right. Like I think they went and, and looked at basically everything that they could. And, um, and based on that, they, you know, came to this conclusion that it was this guy, are there facts left out of the movie? Yes. Are there important facts left out of the movie? We I don't know. I would, we don't know. We don't know. I would lean towards no, just because of reading, you know, the background of what they did. And yes. And, and, but we don't ultimately know, right. Because there may be things out there that don't sure. exist anymore at the time that, sure they're doing the investigation. I mean, yeah. my, my last thing I will say is just that I think the ID at the end adds different evidence to what we're seeing, right? Because everything that we've seen is circumstantial evidence pointing towards him. Now you have the direct evidence of the guy who had firsthand knowledge of being like, hey, I saw him. That I think is like, yeah. hey, that that makes the case 10 times more convincing because it's hard, you know, if you if you go to court on this thing, it's hard to build a case out of, you know, fully circumstantial evidence, but you get an eyewitness account. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and, from and 17 years of, later, but from yeah. 17 years later, I, I just don't put my, maybe this is my psych psych and law skepticism coming in here, but I don't, I just don't give much weight to that. I didn't honestly, I just don't give that much weight to that identification. Yeah, um, uh, granted, he's not being led by the investigator in that situation. So it's not like, Oh, is it this, you know, you know there's so many techniques, you know, and it's a traumatic type thing, right? Where like certain details might stick in your head more than they normally would. But I mean, yeah, that's just traumatic memories are actually less accurate than normal memories, um, which okay. is an interesting, an interesting fact, because yeah. I guess, I guess they're, just, they're so impressionable and you relive them so many times and you change details about it without really thinking about it, things like that. But yeah, oh, oh, look, overall, I think that do, do I think that that Fincher and James Vanderbilt, who this, by the way, J- this is James Vanderbilt's like best work easily. Oh, I, I, mean, was, yeah, I was about to bring that point up. Go look at his other filmography if you want a good yeah. laugh. Like, holy crap, how is this the same guy who did all of these other films? Amazing Spider Man, and I mean, to be fair, I, I don't think the script is the standout of this film, but uh, I mean, certainly the story is. It's certainly very good, though. Yeah. 
but yeah, now I think I think overall, are they exhaustive? Absolutely. Do they have an agenda? Yeah, they have an agenda to make a film that is like really is like highly engaging and compelling. And I think that you have to narrow down to a single suspect to make that engaging film. And I don't fault them for that. I really like I genuinely I know I know I'm saying that I think it's a little dishonest. I'm not faulting them for doing what they did. It makes for a better movie that way. Um, but it, it's a it's just a personal like catch, like catch that I have with a true crime genre. Fair enough. Um Okay, yeah, I didn't find many fun facts on this movie as as much as many as I did uh, regarding yeah, Zodiac killed thirteen Panic, people. Fun fact. yeah. Um, I mean, in terms of the creation of the movie, but um, but one thing I was going to bring up James Vanderbilt's other filmography is being hilarious. Didn't he also write like the Fantastic Four, the Josh Trank one? Maybe I, I don't I know. He, I mean, he's everything done... that he did was bad. Like other than this, yeah. Um, I mean, he. I think he did both the Amazing Spider-Man yeah. movies or something like that, and then he did the horrible Independence Day sequel. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. He yeah. did Murder Mystery for Netflix last yes, year. Yes. Yeah, that was the one. I was like, what the heck? Um, yeah. But yeah, um, he's doing the. He's doing Scream Five. So congrats, Scott. I'm sure you're looking oh, forward to that film. <laughs> why? Uh, why is Kevin Williamson doing it? But doing it. But. Um, the one thing I did find, and I actually, I, I don't think I mentioned this during Panic Room too, but I I have, have mentioned at some point that, you know, Fincher has a reputation for being like a perfectionist um, and like just doing hundreds of takes. Like, and Panic Room, there was like a single shot that he did like over 90 times and they did over 90 takes. This movie, there are things they did like between 70 and 100 takes. That was the quote that I sent y'all from Robert Downey Jr. He was talking about, and he said like, I think I'm a great person to work with Fincher because I understand gulags. Um, so he's very meticulous, but like all of the actors to his credit, you know, see a lot of the actors seem to defend his approach. Like uh, Mark Ruffalo on this movie really defended his approach. And Fincher, you know, himself has said that, um, you know, yeah, maybe we did 70 takes, but the take that we used in the movie was the 70th take, right? So we needed to do all of these things. Um, so I, it's just an interesting way that he, he approaches directing, I guess. Uh, yeah. Maybe that's why he gets such, uh, you know, rich detail and stuff out of the environments and also such great performances out of his actors is that he's he has so many choices uh, when he's ultimately, you know, when he's uh, constructing the movie in the end of... of the editor know, wants to shoot him, probably. Yeah, probably. But um, all right, guys, let's uh, let's move into the wrap up for Zodiac. Your favorite scene or moment from this film, uh, Jake? I think it has to be Jake Gyllenhaal in the basement uh, at the end of the, yeah, towards the end of the film again, you know, just really feeling that paranoia set in, you know, wondering if you've been faked out this whole time or what's about to go down, you know, it, uh, yeah, the bombshell really, first, really well the, the guy's like, I'm the one who wrote these posters and, and you realize, Oh crap, he's trapped in this house now at this guy. Right. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a horror right. movie. It's like, sequence. not like, that it many. Really is. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, and then it's like, yeah. like, not that many people have basements in California, and, he, and of course, like he's walking down, even though in your mind you're like, yeah. "What are you doing?" Uh, Scott, um, your favorite yeah. scene or moment? That's a great scene. I think for me, it's one that we've also already talked about towards the end of the film. It's when he locks eyes with, you know, Arthur Lee Allen. I think that's a, a great moment, right? That, that's not really a scene as much a as much as a moment. And look, it's very impactful. I, that's that's why I think that the movie could have could have ended with an even a stronger note if it ended on that scene in on that particular moment than having this sort of seven and a half years coda uh, at the end of the movie because it's so powerful I think to lock eyes and it doesn't I mean to me in that moment it doesn't even matter if this guy is really the killer like this is the journey this is the end of the journey that we've been on 
you know, whether this guy is the Zodiac or not, um, everything has led to this moment. And whether this guy is the Zodiac or not, this is the end of of Robert Gray Smith's like actual journey to to know and understand who he believes the Zodiac to be. And that character element of like what you believe is almost more important than the truth uh, after so many years and for so long. I think that's what makes that moment so heavy. And I really, I, I think, like Jay, I think you were saying earlier, Jake Gyllenhaal there is perfect in that scene. Yeah, that's a great moment. I will give some love to the other scene involving uh, Lee Allen, the, you know, the long interview yeah. sequence, which I think is a, a really, really good scene. Um, because, like, you know, it, again, they build such a frustrating portrayal of the investigation. And then all of a sudden, here's this moment, and you're like, oh, they've got him. Like, he's acting so guilty, right? Like, he he brings up the knives in his car, knives in his car or whatever, and they've never even, they don't even know anything about that. He's like, uh, oh, I'm, I'm guessing Bill told you about the knives in my car, or, uh, knives in my car or whatever. And they're like, what? And, you know, he sees the Zodiac watch and everything that he's wearing. Like, it's, it's, it's a great, it's another, like, sort of very chilling scene in a way because you're like, crap, here's the guy sitting right there in front of him. And then, you know, it makes it all the more frustrating that they don't get him. Um, they have him cornered. The handwriting samples or whatever and maybe the handwriting wasn't even reliable right because philip baker hall is an alcoholic or whatever and uh was thrown off the job another bogus science yeah i want to keep talking uh, about bogus investigative sciences yeah that's to see dna has made it so that these types of movies just are really not going to happen that much anymore right because dna evidence is so much more conclusive and damning um sometimes sometimes yeah but um, it's less it's now thought to be less reliable than it was 10 years ago yeah, but you know they'll get their man more often than not, which I guess is isn't a, a good end. Um, but I think they're guilty, uh, yeah. Of course, of course. Let's put a score on it, uh, Jay. Uh, best venture film I've seen so far. Uh, I'm gonna go ahead and give it a nine point two. Scott, how about you? Nine point one, great film. Can I give it well, an ele- Can I give it an eleven? <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, no. This is a ten, obviously for me. Um, it, for a film to move up in my favorites list after it was already in the top 10 is like, you know, something like something it's little like, women. Yeah, it is. Um, <laughs> but I, I absolutely love this film. Always will. I think it is one of the best films of the two thousands, one of the best films in my lifetime. And I think I, you know, I always think about this question of like, because I'm doing the AFI countdown now watching through the top hundred AFI best movies of all time, according to AFI. Um, And they haven't done a list since 2007. And so I always think about, you know, next time they come out and do a list, what are the movies like from that time period, which feasibly not necessarily will be on there, but could have a chance of being on there. Zodiac is a movie that I think of, like just because of how the movies come to be regarded as, you know, one of the best films of that decade. Um, And so, yeah, I, I think, I think it is that good. And, Ironically, there's another Fincher film that we still have yet to talk about that may have even a better case to make it into that like top 100 list if they if they remade it um, going down the line. But um, we'll get to that one in a couple weeks. Um, guys, uh, that should do it for this episode of the Fincher Countdown. Um, we hope you have enjoyed this episode. Uh, if you haven't, you'd like to support us, uh, please check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash media plug pods. Uh, Check out our, our podcasts on where your preferred podcast app, Spotify, Apple, whatever. Rate, review, subscribe, do all the things that you do. Uh, and we hope that you will be back for our next uh, edition of the Fincher Countdown, on which we, we will be reviewing David Fincher's 2008 Oscar-nominated drama, 
Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Uh, until then, for Scott Shelton and Jay Habib, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you next time. gesturing or yeah. whatever it's fine i'm back it up. was uh it was not a good part for it to go out in. let me put it that way but like okay. here's the thing i really enjoyed the movie uh i yeah. mean spoilers i guess but and hey, no, I, I read your i read your spoiler free review yeah good I read the good. newsletter come and on of guys course, of course it is like you know it's it's his most complicated movie ever and so it, it, it definitely it's not even close i think it is the most complicated movie and, and so like even though you know like going back the next day watching the whole two and a half hours again it was like it sounds daunting i was like okay, now that I kind of know a lot of stuff or have a basic understanding of a lot of stuff from the first, you know, yeah. three-fourths of the movie, I am interested to go back and watch from the beginning again because I would have gone and re-seen re re it anyway um, yeah. because it's that type of movie. So it wasn't it wasn't the worst movie to have to go back the next day and watch the entire thing again is, is what I'm trying to say, I guess. Yeah. I think that, I mean, we talked about this on the, on the podcast, but it's just like, I think that Nolan is like the, is the director who probably is most often people talk about how complicated his movies are when I actually don't think his movies are that complicated. Like you have to pay attention. You have to be engaged. You have to, you have to really be tuned in. You can't tune out while you're watching his films, but I don't think most of his films require a second watch to really understand everything that's going on. And like, the, I think this one does actually. Yeah. Require a second no, watch yeah, absolutely. What's going on. And maybe it a is third. the most, it is the most surgical, I think in its plot. Like there's just no way, like in, 150 minutes there's like zero wasted minutes in the film. and and that's a problem when certain lines of dialogue you cannot hear because of the sound oh, yeah. mixing but anyway yeah jay um, i'm sure i'm sure you i don't know maybe you've completely avoided stuff but like the mix on this is like not very so it's literally impossible to hear some of the words that people say and the score I, is amazing so that. like that's that's great or whatever but like like scott said you need to like uh, hear and understand like every single line I've also, I mean, I saw it, I didn't see it in 70 millimeter, but I saw it in IMAX and I've heard it's worse than just standard 35 millimeter. Mm -hmm. Like the mix is even worse than 35 millimeter. Interesting. Yikes. Um, but yeah, I mean, th there's a whole scene, like a huge spoiler scene where I have no idea what anyone said in the scene. Um, <laughs> yeah, I kind of, I, I might know the scene you're talking about, but anyway, we yeah. can discuss later. I mean, part of that is designed where you can't understand what someone's saying, but you also couldn't understand what people yeah. are saying that you're supposed to be able to understand. <laughs> uh, but anyway, we'll move on from that. Jay. I hope you drive to New Jersey soon and watch it. It's worth it. You won't be disappointed. Um, okay. Let's get going. Three? That, three minute, that three minute thing we're just going to stick at the end of this episode with <laughs> like a non-spoiler tenant talk at the end of this episode. Uh, three, two, one. <laughs>